uh, clearly a few weeks back, uh, Congress wasn't quite ready uh, to take the first step to begin the end of Obamacare. But uh, uh, conversations have continued since then. I think I think we've made good progress. And okay, so with that health care reform, at least for the moment sort of goes into a bit of limbo, I guess. Not quite sure how else to describe that. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. Your host, uh, Dr. Mike Karuchek, this week. Uh, Dr. Hal and I switched places, so the bad news is you're stuck with me again this week. The good news is I have a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Meg Edison, and the other good news is that Hal will be back next week instead of me. So, you know, as we kind of step back from the healthcare reform that we've talked about for the last several shows, uh, time to pivot to something else and kind of give this a little bit of a rest as Congress goes to recess and, you know, nothing major is going to happen. So, um, Dr. Meg Edison has kindly agreed to join us today on very short notice and give us an update on maintenance of certification. And you, if you are a regular listener to the show, um, you remember that topic and understand most of what that's about. But we're going to go over it again for new listeners, and Meg is going to give us an update. So, uh, Dr. Meg, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. So um, let's just – why don't you uh, refresh for everybody, you know, how you came to the front of this battle uh, a little over a year ago and explain, you know, why this whole maintenance of certification thing is such a problem with, you know, four docs and why it is so inappropriate. And, uh, and then we'll kind of go into the updates that you have for us. Sure. So um, I kind of stumbled my way into being, uh, I guess, a, a leader – in this fight against forced maintenance of certification probably about a year ago. And the story of maintenance of certification is um, what happens with physicians is after we're done with all of our training and all of our um, uh, national licensing exams, which there are three, not four of them, uh, when you get done with your, re- your residency, if you want, you can take a board certification exam. It's kind of like a feather in your cap that shows that you have a, a mastery of the um, specialty that you've chosen in medicine. For me, that was pediatrics. So in 2003, I took my um, board certification in pediatrics. And this used to be a one-time deal. It's not required for a license in any state. It really is supposed to just be kind of, again, a feather in your cap. And so... What has happened with this um, is over the years, this has changed from just a one-time exam into just an ongoing series of examinations and increased fees to the point now where in pediatrics, they, are, they went you know everywhere from every, a 10-year exam to now they've moved to five-year cycles and they're working on um, weekly exams. And it expands into doing research on your patients and sending that data to the boards. And it's very expensive as well. So... The um, Annals of Internal Medicine put the cost at an average of $25,000 every 10 years for a physician. So it's it's a costly um, process. It, um, <laughs> I think a lot of physicians are wondering, why are we doing this? Because it hasn't ever been linked to any, you know, improved patient outcomes. It is not a, a reliable marker for um, whether a physician is a good physician or not. So um, that's what maintenance of certification is. So. So to summarize, you know, you can go to med school for four years, you can do residency for at least three years, often longer, uh, and, you know, we had our own sort of continuing education, you know, continuing medical education program, so it wasn't like we needed a maintenance of certification to fill a vacuum. There was already a system in place, but they said, no, this is not enough. Uh, We need to not only force doctors to retake a test, 
uh, but we need to have them report all of this quality data and all of this other stuff, which in the end it doesn't – there's no proof that it makes things better, but a lot of evidence that it makes it worse. Yeah, it's, it's a very bizarre – when I try to explain this to people, it's very bizarre because we already have um, continuing medical education requirements for our states. Like in Michigan, we have to do 150 hours every three years, and most states have something similar. Um, these, this is, these are private companies that are not even in your state. They don't have any jurisdiction. They just somehow change the rules on all of doctors, and what used to be a one-time test and you were good for life suddenly turns into this your entire education is consumed by these boards. Um, so for me, I, about a year ago, I decided I was kind of done with this. I'd already taken two tests and done multiple research projects for the board and done all of their education requirements, and it came down to the end, and they wanted me to just give them 1500 bucks, or they were going to take away my board certification. And I looked online, and it said it was a voluntary process, so I, I decided not to pay. Um, and then I, I wrote a letter to the Board of Pediatrics, and I guess the reason I kind of got into a other prominent role in this is because yeah. that, that letter I published on the web, and suddenly, you know, within two weeks, it had a hundred thousand views on it. <laughs> it was kind of a modern day ninety-five theses, is really what it was. It was, uh, it was a, 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 you know, a crushing summary of of the uh, of the evils and sins of these. Uh, you know, board certification agencies that are are making you know tens of millions of dollars uh, and becoming rich, uh, while you know er- doctors struggle to meet these requirements and meet the financial obligations. And this is more than just uh, you know you you mentioned in the beginning that that in the beginning board certification was an optional thing; it was a feather in your cap. But that's not really true anymore, is it? No, it's it's not, and I, I've actually found that out the hard way. So it is not it's not voluntary. So what has happened is, uh, despite the fact that there's no evidence that shows this makes for a better doctor or for a better patient outcomes, um, hospitals and insurers have started to require this uh, in order to be you know on the hospital panel or credentialed by the insurance company. And if you step out of line, suddenly you can find yourself unable to practice medicine. And it's very frustrating because these boards have no oversight, and they can change the rules on a whim, and suddenly you're unable to practice medicine. Purely because, especially in your case, you you did all of the – you jumped through all of their academic and intellectual hoops, right? You passed the test. You gave them the quality data. You did all of these things, uh, and then it, it just came down to, you know, you had to, you know, cut the check – and uh, so it was purely a matter of money and nothing else. Yeah, and that's – and even – you know, and some of it is more ridiculous. I had a partner in my practice who he was two weeks late on turning in data on a hand-washing uh, research project he had to send to the board. And as a result, he was harassed by the insurance company in Michigan, and, and he was being threatened with inability to see his patients for not turning in hand-washing research project for a board that isn't even in Michigan. It's in North Carolina. It, it doesn't make any sense, you know. So I think um, this segment is very, you know, you, we've been talking so much about federal legislation. I think this what is really timely here is we're kind of pulling back and looking to what, you know, what can we do um, more locally on a state level. And so for me, when I've been kind of frustrated, how do you deal with this, they, these boards, which seem to be unaccountable and they can change the rules and, you know, what can we do as physicians to kind of fight back on this? Because we really don't have a choice. 
as long as we're forced to participate in order to see patients, we can't really convince the boards to change their minds. So the question we've been kind of all wrestling with is how, how do we take this on and how do we fight for a little bit of rights for physicians um, and a little bit of autonomy on this? So with that background in place, both you know how you came to the forefront of this battle and the, the absolute arguments against why maintenance of certification is not necessary doesn't make anyone a better doctor. It certainly makes you a poorer doctor in the wallet and decreases your access to patients because of the time that you have to spend doing these things. I mean, every hour you spend completing a... Uh, a, a project on hand washing with no proven benefit is an hour that you can't see a sick child. Um, that that the the entire thing is inappropriate uh, and has become sort of a you know financial uh, boondoggle for these these board certification uh, groups. Uh, so why not uh, move on now? Let's uh, give us the update and uh, and 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 tell us uh, what's been going on. Well, I um, I guess. We have a little bit of good news and bad news on what's been going on. So I'm actually really encouraged by um, the physicians who have gotten involved in trying to figure out how do we solve this problem and how to protect ourselves and protect our patients. And so um, right now what we actually have, um, last summer Oklahoma, their legislature passed um, a bill that prevented MOC from being tied to a license, hospital privileges, or insurance participations. And that, that kind of blew everyone's mind because they did it very um, quickly. It was unanimously passed through their House, Senate, and signed by their governor, and and very exciting. And so last year, that's what happened. This year, in the 2017 legislature season, we actually have 11 states that have um, put forward similar legislation, which is very exciting, because this is literally a bunch of physicians who don't know the political process, who just kind of realize there's a big problem um, in medicine, and going to their um, their lawmakers going to the state medical societies and saying, what can we do to fix this problem for physicians? And so that's, you know, if the states this year have legislation that's pending, so that's, that's very exciting news. Is there, do you have any information about uh, which ones look more favorable and which ones may need to wait till next year? Or Well, what we have, as far as the states, we have um, Alaska, Florida, Georgia, Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, New York, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Tennessee, and Texas are the states that kind of put some bills up this year. And so some of them are definitely better than others as far as what they're attempting to um, to do. And it, it's, it, it's kind of hard to watch, but this is the way legislature works in, in the United States is every state's going to operate a little bit differently. They're going to have their own um, ways that they're going to have to work this through, their own um the systems they have in their state and the personalities of the legislature are going to be a little bit different. So whether they are able to kind of be very bold or if they're going to have to be very um, slow and work this um, not in a very bold way. So um, I guess recently some of our big frustrations that we've had that are kind of sad notes. One is Oklahoma. So a couple weeks ago, Oklahoma actually tried to um, pass a revision of their bill that they did this last summer. It was written maybe not quite as perfectly as it should have been, and the hospitals were kind of trying to weasel out of it. So Oklahoma actually tried to put forward a bill that would kind of clarify what um, their bill from last year said. And it actually, up until 24 hours before the vote, it looked like it was going to pass. There was no opposition anywhere. And in the last 24 hours, the American Board of Medical Specialties, ABMS, sent in lobbyists 
and it just kind of blitzed the, the legislature, and it failed miserably. Nice. Um, so that was a very, very kind of sad and sobering moment for us to realize that these this is this is literally a billion dollar industry. If you look at the ABMS and all of the twenty four subspecialty boards, and you count up how much money they have, it's a billion dollars. And if you look at the American Board of Pediatrics, when they kind of forced this MOC, they doubled their money. They make as much on MOC as they do on initial certification. So these boards, they're looking at going from a billion-dollar industry to a two-billion-dollar industry, and they can do that like the Board of Pediatrics did within five years. They can double their money. So this is a very high-stakes game, but that was very sobering. In Oklahoma, it failed. It was like 71 to 22 it was a really big fail. <laughs> but, but Oklahoma still has the original bill in place. They do. They do. But that was definitely a wake-up call for us that the ABMS is willing to put money into this. They'll come in and they will try to confuse the issue um, in the lawmaker's mind because this is very confusing. They'll try to confuse continuing education with their proprietary MOC. And so that's where that happened in the last 24 hours, and so that was very sobering, I think, for us to realize that that, that could happen, and you need to be prepared for that. What was the uh, – oh, you know what? We're already over time. I'm, I'm going to save my question for the second segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Mike Karuchak, your host today with special guest Dr. Meg Edison, our, our, our champion, our, our Hercules in pushing forward the, uh, the maintenance of certification fight. Uh, and we were a, sort of in the middle of a sentence and in the middle of a question. So we were talking about the, uh, the success initially in Oklahoma and, and last year passing a bill that made it illegal for hospitals and insurance companies to make maintenance of certification a requirement 
to maintain your standing at a hospital or maintain your um, uh, credentialing with any insurer. Uh, the good news is that the first bill last year passed. The second, the bad news, uh, I guess, Meg, was that the second bill this year failed to pass. And what I was about to ask you before I realized we were already over time on the last segment was, um, and again, full disclosure, I didn't give Meg a chance to prepare for this question, so I will throw it at her and we'll see what happens. But what were, the, what were the weaknesses in the initial bill that they felt like they had to pass something else? I don't think they were as clear as they should have been um, for the hospitals um, in requiring board certification. So there was definitely wiggle room there. And so that's where the hospitals were trying to wiggle out of it a little bit. So that's where they were trying to clarify the language that they really did mean that you couldn't require MOC for your hospital privileges. Um, and that's where the hospitals uh, came out and lobbied against it. And the in, not only the hospital association, but the individual hospitals lobbied against it, including the ABMS. And so um, it was I think the medical society was blindsided. They did not realize that they would be um, that strong of a lobby in the last 24 hours of legislation they thought was going to pass, no problem. So yeah. I think the lesson there is that they're willing to do that and that physicians need to be calling and educating the lawmakers early so this doesn't happen again. So I imagine then there were hospitals who had their lawyers look at the language of the bill and still try to knock physicians off of uh, you know, get take you know take their privileges away, even though that bill already existed. I mean, I, I guess I assume is that what was going on? You think? Yep, exactly. So, uh, in, in spite of the fact that there is a that, that there was a bill in place to prevent hospitals from doing that, again, you know, once you turn the lawyers loose on the legislative language, they were able to find a loophole. So. Uh, I guess this is going to be up for next year's legislative session, and everybody's going to lick their wounds and try again in Oklahoma, true? Yep, and I think they're going to probably have to take it to the attorney general to get some clarification of this. Oh, okay. So there may be another strategy that says let's let's maybe do a little bit more with the original bill, and if the AG can can make a clarification, maybe sidestep having to go through the legislative process all over again. Yeah. Okay, so – you want to go on? I guess I there was some news going on about Tennessee, and that bill was going yeah, to committee and all that. So, so do that tell. Crazy, <laughs> yeah. So Tennessee had um, both Tennessee and Florida had some had their bills up this week, and so and both of them were disappointing in their own ways. But Tennessee actually had a great bill up there, very similar to um, what was happening in, in Oklahoma that would prevent, you know, it being MOC for your license, your hospital purposes, your insurance participation. And they just received incredible pushback from the hospitals and the insurers. So they ended up kind of regrouping and deciding to go a little bit slower. So they actually completely uh, amended their bill to scrap everything to do with hospitals and insurers, and they're just going to focus on licensure, which is kind of sad because there is not a single state in the country that requires MOC or board certification for a license. So it's kind of like they're writing a bill for something that doesn't even exist. So (laughs) it's kind of sad on one hand, but it is at least a step. This is exactly what Kentucky did a while ago. So it's it's a first step, and I think they're going to work on having, uh, like, an educational group for the lawmakers to kind of look at this and understand a little bit more about what maintenance of certification is. But that was kind of sad to see that happen and that they had to cave to the crash, but at least they're kind of moving forward with some sort of a bill. I guess, you know, Meg, I'm not smart enough to understand legislative strategy. I I guess – 
one can presume that there is value in passing a law that reinforces what's already there. That's already a law. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's wisdom in that, Meg. I don't know. I mean, maybe it, maybe it's practice. Maybe it's a way to sort of figure out who your friends are and who your enemies are, and and get everybody to show their cards a little bit. I don't know. So, so did Tennessee actually pass that, or are we waiting to see? They passed that out of the Senate, so that has to move forward in the legislative process. But and again, this is personality of, of the states too. So, um, Tennessee is not as a state where they're going to do anything radical. They tend to, you know, think things through and they don't want to, you know, jump the gun on anything. So this comes down to the personality of, you know, Tennessee. Okay. So uh, what other states have updates worthy of mention? All right. Florida is the other big one that happened. So Florida also had a beautiful bill um, and it went to their Senate where they did the craziest thing I've ever seen. So they did what they called amending it, which they basically scrapped the entire bill. And okay. uh, they rewrote the bill so that it, instead of um, freeing doctors from maintenance of certification, Florida is actually trying to certify board certification organizations. Okay. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to make of it. Um, but they, they instead of um, instead of getting rid of the requirement, they decided that they would try to regulate um, these specialty boards and kind of going through and saying um, these specialty boards, in order to be approved by the state of Florida, have to be 501c3. They can't charge more than $500 every two years. They have to have a continuing or a, a quality improvement component. I mean, they have to have a brick-and-mortar building. They can't just be an online. They kind of put regulations on the, the governance of these um, board certification. Um, like a, a, a brick-and-mortar building in the state of Florida? or, no, or, or somewhere. Or just somewhere. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I... I don't know what they're thinking there. Um, well, I, I sit there and I <laughs> maybe it's I, I don't know. Maybe there's merit to that because I, I guess as I think about it out loud here, that that takes away the profit motive because now they can't. I mean, I don't know. I guess it gets into exactly you know what the finances of a five hundred one c three are allowed to do. I mean, if these folks are you know doing this so they can you know go on you know fly first class to exotic destinations to have token meetings uh or, or you know take home you know huge amounts of, of take home pay for themselves uh you know i don't know how that reflects in the mechanics of what's required for a 501c3 but i i presume and again i'm out of my depth here but maybe it's it's the it's a it's a backdoor way of fighting them by taking away their ability to make a profit off the backs of physicians Maybe. Well, sort of. I don't think that has much. The, the American Board of Pediatrics is actually a five hundred one c three, and they're um, they have oh. over a hundred and ten million dollars in assets. So I don't know. Okay, so maybe that doesn't work with profit. It is an interesting. I, I again, that's why the states are laboratories of democracy. So yeah. you can try something out in your state. I, if this were happening in Michigan, I would be livid because I, I look at this and I I say, does this does this do anything to free physicians from MOC? Does it increase access for patients? Does it decrease healthcare costs? Um, it, it, it does it Im- improve patient outcomes? It does none of those things, and so it's just another. 
regulatory process for the state of Florida. And so, you know, and when we have increased regulations, the people that can actually process and work through the regulations are going to be people like the ABMS, the ones that have, they're the ones with the billion-dollar business here. It's going to be any competing entity like the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons that's going to struggle to meet these um, these regulations. So that's where I, I am not so sure this is the greatest idea, but it, I guess we have to watch and see what happens. See what happens. Okay, so we talked about Oklahoma, Tennessee, Florida. Uh, what other states? Well, Texas is coming up probably in the next couple of weeks. So they in Texas, we're all putting our hopes on Texas because um, their personalities, they will be a little bit more bold on this. So sure. this is going to be, they have their Senate bill, it's 1148, uh, and it's going to be in their Senate Business and Commerce Committee probably in the next two weeks. So this is going to be exciting. I'm, I, I'm hoping this goes through because if, it's, if, if Texas can do it, I think it will embolden the rest of the states to do this as well. Well, then we'll have uh, you know we'll have Oklahoma and Texas with with uh, with laws on the books, and maybe that's enough to to push things along. What what is the Texas bill still pure, or did they have to do? It's stuff? a great bill. No, it's a great bill so far. Texas has a great bill. Um, Alaska has a great bill as well. Um, Michigan has a good bill. So there are a lot of states that have some really good bills. There are some states that are just trying to do. Uh, you know, that maintenance of licensure bill, just kind of trying to make a law saying it's illegal, do it's already illegal. <laughs> so what's, um, I mean, what are the components of a good bill? What, what defines a good bill in your opinion? I, I think it has to um, deal with all aspects of um, your ability to practice medicine. So um, it needs to deal not only with licensure, which obviously we want to protect that, um, but it also has to do with hospitals. So if you can't practice in a hospital, because they're requiring board certification or maintenance of certification, that's a problem. And furthermore, we need to also deal with the insurance companies, because if the insurance companies are making you do this in order to be on their panels, that influences your ability to practice medicine. So um, we can't just deal with the licensure. If, if you can get a license but can't practice medicine in the state because of the hospital's insurers, that bill doesn't do anything. So that's where I think dealing with all three of those aspects is crucial for us. So what was the – now here's another unfair question. I'm going to tell everybody in advance because I didn't give her a chance to prepare for this one. But what was the, what was the problem – what was the weak spot in the original Oklahoma bill that the hospitals were able to exploit? That's a, that may be a hard question. It is a hard question. I, I read it, and it actually looked like it was pretty good. This is when we get into legal talk. I, I'm sure they found a way around this. And the, the hospital one is very baffling to me because there already is federal code that says that you can't use board certification as a sole criteria um, to decredential a physician from your hospital. So I don't. That is very confusing to me how the hospitals are even getting away with requiring board certification and when it already violates federal code. Did it, did it say solely. sole criteria? Maybe that was how no. they got it. If they said that uh, maybe it was if – if they said it had to be multiple criteria or something. I don't know. I'm sort of thinking off the, uh, off the top of my head. I guess – I mean it seems like the hospitals and the insurers are always on the wrong side of about every issue we talk about. But if – I mean you would think that insurers would want as many doctors as possible even in a self serving financial paradigm, the more doctors they have, the more they can push rates down and make doctors compete against each other and groups compete against each other. 
So you would think they'd want more doctors in the mix, not reasons to knock doctors out and have fewer and fewer left because the fewer and fewer ones that are left, you'd think could say, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's a supply and demand thing for physicians. It's a very confusing thing. And in Michigan, I, I think Michigan is probably an outlier with Blue Cross Blue Shield just kind of aggressively going after physicians. But we have a situation in Michigan where physicians who are not doing MOC, meaning they've passed their boards uh, I'm going to cut times. you off mid-sentence. We're at the end of the segment, and uh, we'll pick up uh, that sentence. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Meg Edison. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week here with special guest Meg Edison, uh, who is the uh, our, our champion, if you will, of uh, maintenance of certification. And she has given us sort of the state-by-state update of uh, what's going on. We've already talked about, let's see, Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, and Tennessee. And uh, I think you're going to move on to talking about the states that are still left on the list because you said there's, what, 13 states that – yeah, it's eleven states. So, eleven states. Okay. Um, before we before we kind of change the break, what yes, I was go ahead. telling you is, that, you know, in Michigan, I think we're kind of a, a a good example of why this legislation needs to pass um, because of what we're having happen with the insurers, kind of hunting down physicians and, and kicking them off of panels for not doing MOC. But what we have in Michigan is we have a situation where physicians who are deciding not to participate in MOC, meaning they've got decades of experience and they've passed multiple board examinations, but decide they're just done doing MOC. They are actually hiring nurse practitioners to see their Blue Cross Blue Shield patients because the insurance will credential a nurse practitioner fresh out of training but not a physician with decades of experience who is not doing MOC. Oh, that's and that's lovely. where we're at right now in Michigan. So this is why it's, it's so important that this has gotten completely out of hand, and so we don't want this to kind of spread to the other states and have other doctors experience what we're experiencing here. Is that just in pediatrics, or is that across the board? This is across the board. Incredible. So yeah. they'll even do that. I mean, I wonder what they're doing in the surgical specialties, because mid-levels can't operate on people so i wonder what the heck they're doing with that as i just sort of think out loud about it 
That's crazy. Well, those physicians are going to be forced to keep participating. You know, you really don't have a choice to say, I'm done. I've been doing this for decades. I I need to stop jumping through these hoops. So that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and that's what it ends up. And these folks, they understand it, and and somehow they're okay with it. I I don't know how they sleep at night, but I guess they've gotten used to it (laughs) with so many other issues that they've, they've behaved similarly in the past. Okay, so you talk about some other states or whatever you got. Yeah, Alaska has a great uh, a great bill. Their House bill, uh, it's 191 that just got introduced. I love it. Um, Alaska is going to be, you know, like, like Texas, they're going to be, you know, feisty and really wanting to kind of protect their doctors from, you know, influence from these um, boards that are not even, you know, in their state. So I, I'm excited to see what they're going to do. That shouldn't be a, a problem for Alaska. Um, Georgia had a bill. I, I actually, now that I'm looking at this, I think they actually have passed this through. I don't know where Georgia is in their legislative session, but it may not go anywhere. But it actually hasn't reached, hasn't had, had any opposition yet. Oh, did it pass um, both? Ha- I should know this. I'm embarrassed. I'm I, I live ten miles from I, the capital. <laughs> I have a note here that it did. So, oh, um, okay. So it is whether it, it goes over to the to the Senate or how that works out, but. Oh, okay. So um, it's only passed out of the House. The Senate hasn't acted on yeah. it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I think the legislative session's over, so it's probably um, – if it doesn't get over by what Georgia calls crossover day, th- then uh, it, it may be gone for the year. But you know, it, it's funny how it works in Georgia, and I assume it works this way in other states. Is It's kind of like you have to bring these bills up over multiple sessions over multiple years, and every year it gets a little farther um, until finally you know, you, you've got – 90 days or so, you've got the first three months of the year to get this stuff passed, um, and then the governor's got all the time in the world to sign it, but you got to get it through both houses in three months. Yeah, and that's okay, I think, you know, because this is a kind of confusing topic, and so it does give you time to talk to your lawmakers and get to know them and kind of explain the argument a little bit better. True. Okay, so what other states you got? All right, Maryland. Actually, they they passed um, through their uh, through their Senate and House on April fourth. So just a few, you know, just recently, they passed their bill. It was Senate Bill nine eighty nine. That was only a maintenance of licensure um, one again, but they they did it. So I think that's great. Cause, you know, it just has to go to the to the governor to be signed. Um, Michigan, we we introduced a bill last year. It didn't go anywhere. It went to a committee hearing, um, and it was interesting. ABMS showed up and kind of bullied the doctors who did uh, testify in committee, um, but it didn't go any further, so we had to reintroduce it this year. And in Michigan, instead of trying to take on the insurers and the hospitals, we just focused a little bit, and we're focusing more on the insurers because that's a big deal. The hospital system doesn't, you know, they, you know, if they don't know for sure that the insurance companies don't require it, they're not going to change their bylaws either. So in Michigan, we're just focusing on the insurers um, this time around. So how did they... Uh, again, maybe an unfair question, but but I mean, how exactly do you bully a physician who's testifying? I mean, so, what did they do? They like, get personal or what? They come very close to you and hand you their business card and say things like, "Hello, Doctor Edison. It's nice to finally meet you. We are watching." So that's okay. how you bully a physician. <laughs> okay, so this was a uncomfortable. No doubt. Um, so I guess this is. Um, this was not during the testimony. This was before to try to. This is after testimony. After yeah. testimony. <laughs> uh, and that's just you know Michigan. Michigan, we're right next to Chicago, and that's where the ABMS is located. So of course they're going to make the drive over to our our capital. But 
Right, but there, I mean, yeah. I mean, this was just the the, the ABMS, right? Or, yeah. Or, okay. How nice. Okay. I know. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, what well, else? I'm prepared for it this time, though. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. This is this is. I mean, at this point, you've already had your baptism in fire. I would imagine. I mean, I know it'll be okay this time around. <laughs> fair enough. So All right. Missouri, Missouri, Missouri they've okay. actually had a bill introduced for many years. I think three years now they've been trying. It's very similar to Oklahoma's bill. Um, it's House Bill 529. It's been introduced, but um, it just hasn't gone anywhere for them either. Um, New York, they have their assembly. It's a, Assembly Bill 4, 4914. Theirs is also just a um, maintenance of licensure bill, but at least something. <laughs> right, a start. Uh, Rhode Island has another one there. Um, there it's House Bill 5671. That's a maintenance of licensure bill for them, too. So um, I, a few states are just trying, I think, to kind of test the waters a little bit with that. I think the real big bills that they can go anywhere this year will be Texas and Michigan and Alaska have the best bills out there this year. Gotcha. And, and, and Texas and Alaska have a good chance of actually passing, you said, right? I think so. Yeah, okay. I think that their their personalities are just such that they don't get it done. So I guess, and I mean, you you tell me what you think, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, this is probably a this is meeting reasonable expectations. I would think. I mean, I, you know, we're also new to this political process as docs, but I absolutely. I mean, just just two years ago, we were talking with physicians about, you know, getting involved in your state medical society and going in and, and writing a resolution and, and getting this passed into policy and, we, and watching physicians kind of do something very uncomfortable for them and getting involved in organized medicine. And, and we watched that move all the way up to the AMA. The AMA actually has policy now that opposes MOC being tied to licensed hospital privileges and insurance participation. That's huge. You know, that this is, is AMA policy. So we, we watched this happen, and now this year we went from what we had three bills introduced last year to eleven this year. I mean, it's very exciting. So I wonder if there's any, especially if you know, with the AMA's resolution, I wonder if there's any potential at the federal level to incentivize, um, and, and then this maybe you, you tie this in as a rider to any ACA reform that might pass, or or maybe Tom Price can do it in HHS without that within the within what what the ACA gives the secretary powers is to come up with some sort of you know financial incentive maybe based on medicaid grants or something that if a state passes you know MOC legislation that meets certain criteria that maybe you know they get more money at some level or something that would be a change of fortune wouldn't it because yes, it used it would. to actually be tied to you got a better reimbursement if you were doing MOC so that would be a definite change in right <laughs> But I mean, we've had enough change in the, in the uh, you know in the in the winds up there that maybe there's maybe there's some potential to work on that, and especially since you know reform on ACA is as Paul Ryan puts it now, what back at the conceptual stage, that, uh, that that maybe there's a way to tinker with it that way. That would be. Yeah, I think. I think so many of us are just trying to figure out different ways to kind of deal with this. So the federal level, it seems so overwhelming, but I do agree now that we're seeing so many changes going on this might be time for a change federally as well too so um so last question we got what three minutes left or something like that but what um what do you think is the best messaging you know because so much of this stuff is 
not really visible to the public, right? This is sort of a, a, a struggle that physicians have to face, and it's hard to, to get the public engaged because it is so complex. And on the surface, it sounds, it sounds like a good idea on the surface, right? Because the public's not familiar with CMEs and all the things we already have to do. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, how do we engage our patients with this? How do we engage right. the public with this? What's the what's the message? The best messaging on this, in your opinion? And it is confusing because it is a, it is a hidden struggle in, that physicians are dealing with, and so it's hard to explain this to patients. But a few things: the reasons we are so motivated um, is, is because of our patients, and this is impacting patients negatively. So. The first one is MOC is one of the early, it's one of the biggest drivers in early retirement in physicians right now. So when I talk to physicians, I have more physicians talking about retirement based on their MOC cycle than what's in their 401k. And doctors talk about this all the time. I'm set to research in three years. I'm going to re- retire before that. And that's, that's really sad that we're losing physicians early because they don't want to have to go through this expensive, very onerous and invasive process. Um, and that's that's an access issue for patients. If their doctor is going to retire, you know, three to five years earlier than they would have, that's a big deal in a time when we're dealing with a physician shortage. Um, it also impacts physicians and patients in terms of the education of the doctor. So when we specialize, we actually start we even specialize even more because we, um, we we tailor our practice to our personality and to our patients. And so when we choose our education, we want to choose something that will best suit our patients. And what is happening with these boards is they're dictating what we're allowed to learn, and that's impacting our education negatively and what we can provide for our patients. And the third area is the area of research because these these boards require you to do their research and you send the data to the boards. Instead of you being able to do your own novel research um, within your practice, your own practice improvement modules, you have to actually do what they're telling you to do. And so this is impacting patients as well on the type of research that we're able to do. So yeah, so you've got three major points there. Yeah, and the the, the one that, that strikes me the, the most is the idea that you can't tailor your education to uh, to what your patients need, right? And, and, and you said yeah. that the best, and I think that's probably something that would resonate with patients the strongest is to say, look, I, I see you, I understand a need. If I want to go out and learn more about your problem, um, you know, I can't do that because I am too covered up doing what, you know, some stranger on a board who doesn't know me, the doctor, and doesn't know you, the patient, um, that now I am forced to, to, to study things that I don't even do anymore. And I do remember reading about that in one of the Time magazine uh, articles about that, and I think it was, it was anesthesiology at the time that said they had to study stuff that, that they don't even do anymore. So uh, we're at the end of the third segment. Uh, you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Meg Edison. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. 
Thank you. Obamacare is failing, but in order to get back on the right track with health policy, people need to be informed. Obamacarewatch.org is your resource to understand what's happening with this law and what you can do to stay active, stay informed, and make positive change happen. Obamacarewatch.org. Visit us now. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge, segment four. Thank you so much for staying with us. Karuchak, your host this week. Dr. Schertz will be back next week his, in, in his inimitable self, and he's got some uh, had some real adventures I hope he shares with you next week. But uh, I am here talking with Mike Hamilton from the Heartland Institute, and we were talking about uh, his strategy uh, for what we should do the next time around, and I think it has to do with uh, doing some serious tinkering with the filibuster. So, uh, Mike, tell everybody sort of how that works and what it would take to actually do it. Well, I would be happy to. Essentially, the filibuster is probably the, the uh, one of the more interesting parts of American governing and politics that people will probably assume is part of the, US, the United States Constitution, but it's actually not mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, the filibuster is a Senate rule. Um, and when it's said, people might, you know, conjure up uh, the, a movie they probably had to watch in high school at some point. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington where he pulls this all-nighter and he's reading things like David Copperfield or Moby Dick from the House floor or the rules of playing cards. Uh, and it's this, it's this uh, really uh, headline-catching, stalling technique in order to prevent the majority party from pushing legislation through that, um, that a minority uh, would oppose. Uh, but the minority can't uh, vote down the legislation if it comes up for a vote. And so what they do is they try to prevent uh, prevent the the uh, uh, the bill from actually coming up for a vote. And if the person sits down uh, and they uh, before they yield the floor, um, then that means that they essentially uh, have have uh, stopped filibustering. And real quickly, the Senate Majority Leader um, or the President of the Senate uh, can can call a vote and uh, and and they lose. So that's why it's really this dramatic thing. Um, but the uh, but the the way to get over a filibuster is by having uh, enough votes to uh, attain what is called cloture. Uh, cloture uh, is uh, the, is a three fifths majority. We have a hundred senators in the Senate, and so three fifths of that would be sixty senators. And that's why you hear this number sixty thrown around all the time because the Senate rules say that um, that if you can get to sixty votes. Uh, then you can um, then you can end debate on a particular bill that is before the floor. And so, if you don't have 60 votes, then that means that the minority party uh, is able to essentially extend debate for an unlimited amount of time. Uh, and they do that with the filibuster. Uh, so uh, that's why that number 60 is more important. Uh, but it is so important right now. And the filibuster has been around for uh, for, for a very long time. 
But it's not something that the Founding Fathers uh, said is an absolute indispensable part of governing in this country. Uh, it's, it's not one of the original checks and balances, um, not even one of the internal checks and balances simply within the legislative branch. Uh, and so uh, it would be entirely constitutional if the um, if the Senate were to decide that we're going to uh, to suspend the filibuster. We're not. We're just going to do away with it, and we're going to do things by a simple majority. If you get 51 votes versus 49 votes, then that means that the bill passes. The only problem is, Mike, that in order to suspend the filibuster uh, and to make it go away, either for everything or just for a particular uh, kind of vote, such as confirming a judge or a justice or uh, passing health care reform, is that you would have to essentially break the Senate rules in order to do that. Um, it doesn't mean you'd be breaking the law, but it does mean that you'd be, uh, you, you'd be getting rid of the filibuster in a way that is, uh, that, that is um, it's not like it's not above board, um, but it's abrupt uh, and it's, it's unconventional. Um, but fortunately, we have actually a precedent for seeing how this is done because that's exactly what Harry Reid and, uh, and the Democrats in the majority did uh, in, uh, I think it was 2013, if I'm not mistaken. But President Obama had uh, some federal judges that he wanted confirmed, uh, and these uh, minority Republicans were getting in the way, and they were filibustering. And so Senator Reid, um, the majority leader at the time, decided, okay, well, we'll just nuke the filibuster. We'll change the Senate rules on this. Uh, and we'll take the vote, and uh, that's entirely constitutional to do. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it, it, the Republicans at the time said it was unfair. Now it actually wouldn't be unfair. Turnabout's fair play, and uh, frankly, I think it's the only. Uh, it, it's it's most. It's I think it's a great candidate as one of the few ways in which health, meaningful health care reform is going to get passed in this country. I, I can think of one or two other ones, but. Uh, but we've seen this obsession with the filibuster. The, the premise of the GOP leadership was, uh, was really based on the assumption um, that, this that this filibuster is this massive obstacle that we must navigate. Um, and so uh, one of the ways to navigate around the filibuster is to make it not be there anymore. So is that decision solely at the discretion of the Senate majority leader, or does something, some other parliamentary requirement have to be fulfilled? I'll have to brush up a little bit on that. I, I believe that it could be uh, removed with a uh, simple majority um, and not merely just uh, the, the choice of the Senate uh, majority leader. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I'll, have to, I'll have to defer on that one. But either way, I mean, it's, I mean obviously with, with 52 Republicans in the Senate, we could get a majority vote to eliminate the filibuster either – Across the board or by bill category or I guess by, you know, even on an individual bill, you could say a filibuster is not necessary or cloture is not That's necessary. Right. Yeah, so, it, it could be done. And and you know, the fear is that, well, what if we lose power, we being Republicans, uh, what if we lose power and then the Democrats use it against us uh, in four years or in eight years? And then, and then we won't have any recourse. We won't be able to say – um, well, wait a minute. We, you know, we you need to leave the filibuster where it is because we won't have any credibility then. But personally, I believe that the ne at least regarding health care, the next time that the Democrats gain power, if they gain it four years from now or eight years from now, it won't be uh, the start of something new. Uh, I think that their mentality is going to be one of okay, let's finish what we started. Let's uh, it's, let's essentially uh, now do what we always wanted to do, in which Obamacare was a big stepping stone to doing. And that's establishing a single-payer health care system. I think with that mentality, um, they're going to view themselves as very close to the completion of their goal, so close that they can't let these Republicans trifle with these 
with this uh, delay tactic of the filibuster. And so even if we leave, my belief is that even if we, if the Republicans were to leave it, the filibuster intact right now, that it's still going to get turned against them the next time the Democrats hold power, um, at least at least for the purposes of health care reform. Well, it, it seems to me that you're right, Mike, because, you know, why would you not do something like this and be trusting them to do the right thing and, recipro- and reciprocate when the tables are turned, as they will inevitably be at some point in the future. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think you referred to it in your article as a first strike capability. So, right. um, <laughs> so it, it would seem to me that it's the thing to do. But now what about – I mean there's going to be people who say you know, we're, you know, you're undoing decades if not you know, one or two centuries of tradition, of protection of the minority party, of – all sure. of these things. Um, again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I, so right. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's. I guess the response to them is just that you know the climate of things is such that that's the way. You know, I mean, if, if, yeah. if what's good for the goose is good for the gander, I suppose, because Harry Reid started this whole thing. <laughs> right. I, I think that's that's one of the responses that you have to sort of bring out is that uh, the Democrats are they, they have already struck first. They didn't do it with uh, with nuking the entire filibuster out of existence, um, but they they did show that when they really, really wanted to, uh, it really was worth suspending this filibuster and, and undoing uh, decades and decades and decades of this staple that uh, is probably a lot of things' favorite thing that they learned about in their government and politics class, uh, unless they unless they really like it the way that, you know, maybe I do and you do and a lot of your listeners do. Um, it's, it's, it's this old thing that is always supposed to be around, except when the Democrats decide that they don't want it to be around, and we have proof of that because it's exactly what Harry Reid did. And so, um, so I, I think that that's, um, that, that it's a little, it's really a myth to think that, um, that it's, it's this thing that's never been tampered with. It has been tampered with, and it's going to be tampered with again um, by one party or another. And um, I just as soon see it tampered with by both parties instead of only the uh, the party that's uh, currently in the minority. Uh, and the other, I guess, response to it is that um, you could make the argument that the Senate filib- the getting rid of the Senate filibuster is actually going further back in history uh, because it would. Uh, it's not as if it's unconstitutional, but it's not in the Constitution. It was made in by, by a direct um, by a process that uh, it coheres with and agrees with the Constitution. Um, but at the same time, it is itself not something um, that the founding fathers you know, put in there. And so you could actually make the argument that by getting rid of it, you're getting you're getting closer to what the framers of the Constitution uh, envisioned for the for what the Senate process would look like. Okay, so so let's assume that 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 you know that that happens just for the sake of argument. So so what? So the idea would be to construct a full repeal, replace in a single bill. It, it, correct. I mean, would you? Right. Would you, yeah, exactly. And and so we we both agree on what the end point is. The end point is to shrink the footprint of third party payers uh, and and make. You know, most of healthcare, eighty percent of healthcare that's done electively, uh, yeah. and 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 make that where the patients got skin in the game, and that they are shopping with their own dollars. They are incentivized to save their own dollars, just like they are when they go buy a computer or a cell phone or a flat screen TV or or, or a car. Yeah. So yeah. so what? Uh, and again, I'm putting Mike on the spot here because we didn't talk about this in advance. So what's the so so what's the what's the transition state? How do you construct something that that um, that won't get 
attacked based on losing people who have coverage or, or how do you how do you reframe the discussion how do you do the marketing for something yeah. like that and do it better than it was done the first time Sure. Well, I think that we it's not difficult to beat that standard of how we can arise on the yeah. marketing uh, part because yeah, that's, really. a, that's a pretty low bar. But but I do think that what we need to do and what the Republican Party is going to need to do is change America's view of health insurance, which is, I think, not an easy task. However, I personally have found, and, I, and I've been focused on health care for you know, about a year and a half, just like focused on health care and only health care. And, and already I've just found that, wow, as much as it's ingrained as people people's view is of how health insurance works they think they have to use it all the time for everything and that um and you know that they're, they're going to die or their loved one's going to die essentially or, or go or go broke and, and uh, you know be in a gutter for the rest of their lives if they don't have health insurance um and then you just after a few conversations you actually you know it can can get them thinking of health insurance a little bit differently and you get them thinking of it as the way that they think of uh, of other types of insurance and i've already sort of gone through that with health with uh, with life insurance and homeowners insurance and and auto insurance, but that's that's really an important marketing point. Is that um, is that you you explain to people that you're no longer trying to spend thousands of dollars uh, to meet your deductible in order to have the illusion of free health care the rest of the year. That's not free health care the rest of the year. You just paid five or six grand, or if you're a family and you maxed out your family deductible, you pay twelve or thirteen grand if you if you're on Obamacare plans. Um, and it takes you you know ten months of the year to do that. Congratulations, you have free health care for the the last three months of the year you know that's that's not a good system and it's a and so if you can get people to think about uh, using their insurance uh, only for emergencies then i think that's a huge part of the messaging battle and it's really important mike because under obama uh, uh, under uh, their uh, ideal republican strategy you would have these inexpensive insurance plans with dirt cheap premiums uh, and the coverage would you know they would likely have very high deductibles because they'd be for emergencies uh, and you would or you would hope never to use your deductible uh, or hope never to file an insurance claim unless uh, you know god forbid you got you felt really ill or had some some serious emergency. Um, and what that means is that then you would actually be trying uh, to to spend as little as possible on health care instead of what the current system does and what both Obamacare and what the American Health Care Act would have really encouraged people to do, which is uh, spend as much uh, on health care in order to ma- max out the deductible. Well, Mike, we're done. That's the hour. So good way to end <laughs> it. it. All right. um, as always, wonderful to, to have you in the doctor's lounge. Um, you're listening to the doctor's lounge on America's Web Radio. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.